All right, let's go ahead and begin this morning with a word of prayer, and we will start, uh, or rather continue, our series through 2 Samuel. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here this morning. Um, I pray that you would quiet our hearts. Lord, help our focus to be on you. Uh, we're easily distracted. We're easily um, caught up in the world and... Uh, Lord, we just need to keep our focus on you and remember our mission, why we're here, uh, what you are doing in our lives. I pray that the scriptures would help shape our focus this morning, uh, that we would be malleable as you uh, perhaps work on our hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to begin this morning with a question. And uh, the question is this, can you think of a situation in which someone was convicted of wrongdoing, and yet the punishment that was meted out did not match the severity of the crime committed. Uh, maybe, maybe put simply, uh, the punishment did not fit the crime. Uh, can any of you guys think of an example in which that might be true? Maybe you've experienced that in your own life, unfortunately where maybe someone was too harsh for something you, didn't, you did that you didn't think was all that severe. Uh, I'm thinking of a couple like high profile cases uh, that have been circulating the news right now. How many of you guys have heard of Brittany Griner and what's going on with her in Russia? Yeah, so she was convicted of uh, drug smuggling. She's a NBA player, WNBA player, who was in Russia and she was convicted of smuggling drugs into the country. And you might think, well, maybe she had like a suitcase full of uh, drugs or something, but in actuality, she just had two little uh, canisters of oil for her vape, pen, her vape pen, which contained uh, cannabis in it. And the sentence that was meted out was nine years in Russian prison. And, you know, I read an article that said, nine years in prison for two canisters of oil is harsh even by Russian standards. And... Obviously, she did break the law. There was drugs that she brought into the country, but we look at that and think, uh, something's a little off here. We know that things are kind of politically charged in Russia right now, and we think that that is probably factoring into it. Okay, the crime and the punishment aren't quite matching up here. Would we agree with that? Maybe? Seems a little harsh. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there's another news case that has uh, uh, been popular here in the last couple of weeks regarding the Parkland school shooter. Maybe you watched his uh, uh, trial on TV and uh, this young man killed, I think, 17 people and was sentenced to life in prison. And yet there was a bit of an uproar that maybe he deserved more. There, there were people who thought uh, your actions deserve the death penalty. You got off easy. And so we, we are prone to make these judgment calls, to look at events that happen. And, and I'm not really here to give commentary on right or wrong, what should have happened. But just we, we look at some of these things and think, yeah, you got off easy or uh, you deserved a stricter punishment. Uh, we're going to see and perhaps experience that same thought process in our text this morning where David actually looks at something God does and says, God, I think you're overreacting here. I, I think that the punishment doesn't quite fit 
the crime, and perhaps we're going to be prone to think that very same thing ourselves. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter six. Beginning in verse one, we read, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Let's stop there. There's a lot to unpack here as we're brought up to speed on where we're at and what's going on. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 5, David has recently been crowned uh, king of a united Israel. The kingdom is growing, his family's growing, and it seems that he's trying to continue this momentum here in chapter 6 by getting the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem. Uh, he's, he's already established Jerusalem as the city of David, and it seems like by bringing the ark here, he wants to make it the national and spiritual capital of Israel. And what better way to do that than, hey, let's go get the ark and bring it to my new city. But something should strike us as a little bit odd. We might think if he's going to get the ark that he would go to the tabernacle, and bring it over. But that's not what the text says he does or where he goes. He actually goes to the house of Abinadab where the ark is residing. And we're like kind of left scratching our heads like, what is the ark doing at someone's house? It belongs in the tabernacle. Well, well, this is a continuation of a story that begins all the way back in 1 Samuel, long before David, long before Saul, even before Samuel, this story goes all the way back to the time of Eli when he was judge over Israel. And Eli, uh, I think, I'm not sure how long he was a judge for, but anyway, as he is judge, they are battling the Philistines, their perennial enemies. Anytime Israel's in a battle, the Philistines is a good guess as to who their opponent is. Same is true with Eli back in 1 Samuel. Uh, there's a description of a battle in which 4,000 Israelites are killed in a single day. And the people just get smoked by the Philistines. And so in an effort to like not let that happen again, they have this great idea. Hey, we just lost 4,000 guys. Uh, not interested in that. What if we got God to be on our side? What if we brought God to battle with us the next time around? How do we do that? Let's bring the ark onto the battlefield. Unfortunately, the results of that were catastrophic. They would have been much better off actually consulting God and his will for them rather than trying to manipulate him and bring his presence onto the battlefield because the nation of Israel lost 30,000 men in one battle when they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them. The Philistines capture the Ark. Um, Eli, upon hearing the news that the Ark has been captured, falls over backward in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. And so the ark actually remains contained in Philistia for several months as they now possess this ark. And a, and a series of strange things starts happening to them. Um, at, at one point, they keep finding their god like face down 
on the ground. At one point, you know, even their God has been like severed at his hands and feet, and he's just lying there before the Ark of the Lord. Uh, and then people start breaking out in these tumors uh, that are afflicting the people of the town. And I think it might be Gath that the, Ark, that the Ark is in at first. And the people of Gath are like, we do not want this anymore. So they ship it off to another town in Philistia. Same thing happens to them. They ship it off to another town. The Ark is just traveling around Philistia and they are getting tumors breaking out all over them for the Ark of God being in their midst. And finally they get the picture and they're like, we do not want this thing in our town anymore. We don't even want this in our country. Let's send it back to Israel. Let's make it their problem. So they put the ark on a cart, have these two cows carry it back into Israel. And, you know, the people of Israel are presumably very happy that they got back the ark of the covenant. But instead of returning it to the tabernacle, 1 Samuel chapter 7 tells us that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And that's why David, here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, goes to this guy's house. Because that's where the ark's been for over 40 years. Throughout the whole reign of Saul, throughout everything that has happened, the ark has not been in the tabernacle. It's been at this guy's house. The ark of the covenant is incredibly important. It's not just like a piece of decoration that God gave instructions for. No, there were two cherubim on top that God's presence was said to rest over. It is the very ark that the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood on the day of atonement and make atonement for the sins of the people. So this returning of the ark to its former glory, to a place of worship, I'm sure was met with rejoicing. You can see that rejoicing in verse 5 as David is bringing it. We read, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. This is an exciting time. This is a huge deal. And all is going well up to this point until we get to verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. You can kind of picture this in your mind's eye. I've got this picture up here for you. Here the people are bringing the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. All of the sudden, the oxen stumble, maybe they hit a bump in the road, and Uzzah, as everyone is celebrating, sees the ark begin to topple, and he sticks out his hand to steady it, and instantaneously, he's killed. And it wasn't like he simultaneously died of like a, a freak heart attack. No, the text says that God struck him down in his anger. David's response is mixed. Look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David here at first, he's angry 
that God struck down Uzzah for touching the ark. He even names the place Perez Uzzah, which means something like the outbreak against Uzzah, insinuating that God is the initiator here of this outbreak against Uzzah. Then he's afraid. He wants nothing to do with this ark. Like, I do not want to bring this to Jerusalem. This thing is way too dangerous to transport if someone touches it and is struck down. Like, uh, nope, we'll just leave it here at this guy's house. And so for the second time in a short period of time, the ark is just moving from house to house in Israel. And I want to ask you guys a question that I asked at the beginning here. Does the punishment fit the crime. That's rhetorical. Did Uzzah deserve to die for touching the ark? Right? We understand some crimes are deserving of the death penalty, murder being one of them. But touching the ark of the covenant? Mm, I don't know. Yes, Hutch. Yeah, we're going to look at that in just a second. Yeah, you're exactly right. So uh, we, we are prone to look at it just as 2 Samuel 6 pitches it. And maybe those same thoughts about God that David had are prone to appear or exist in our hearts where we're like, maybe we're not angry at God, but we're like, seems like a bit of an overreaction there to touch the ark and you kill someone. But we, right, 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 right. We, we can definitely see that side of the equation, right? From our perspective, we, we can find ourselves siding with David and like, Come on, I don't know that this should have happened here. But Hutch is exactly right. We're going to get there in just one second. If we're, if we're not careful to understand all of what's going on here, even commands that exist outside of 2 Samuel chapter 6, then we might be prone to side with David in this story. But to think that God is vindictive or harsh or overreactionary really is not true thoughts that we want to think about God. So let's, let's inform ourselves on all of the instructions regarding the Ark of Covenant before we cast judgment on the punishment here. First and foremost, we need to consider in evaluating Uzzah's actions that God's expectations for transporting the Ark were very, very clear. Right? It wasn't like there was some secret rule that God hadn't told anyone about transporting the ark. And when Uzzah broke it and touched the ark, God shouted, gotcha, and killed him. Right? Like, there were clear written rules about how do we move the ark of the covenant from place to place. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 25. Uh, in the midst of the description on the construction or the building of the ark, God includes these instructions. He says, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. From these instructions, let me ask you, how is the ark supposed to be transported? By men, yes, carrying 
holes. I'll show you a picture of that in just a second. Uh, but there's another occasion where God gives instructions regarding the transport of the ark. In Numbers chapter 4, we read, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. Now the these in Numbers chapter 4 is certainly the ark, but also the lamp, the table, all of the artifacts that are associated with Israel's worship needed to be carried by whom? Men. Specifically, here in Numbers chapter 4, it is the sons of Kohath. These are men who are in the tribe of Levi. This action of moving the ark could only be done by those who were Levites, specifically sons of Kohath, and they had to be carrying How did David choose to transport it? Yeah, he put it in a cart and carried it with oxen. And yet the Bible's instructions say the ark is supposed to be carried like this. We can already see that David, in his maybe enthusiasm to move the ark to Jerusalem, has neglected to obey God's clear instructions. And this leads us to the second point, that there were clear consequences for failing to move the ark in this manner. I neglected to include the last sentence from Numbers chapter 4. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. The consequences for failing to obey the instructions regarding the ark were also crystal clear. God says, do not touch the holy things lest you die. Pretty black and white, right? I remember back in school, uh, teachers would ask us a question on quizzes or tests. They would say, uh, you know, yes or no, did you read all of the required reading for this section. And depending on the sensitivity of your conscience, that was a pretty anxiety-loaded question, right? Because if you have a pretty sensitive conscience and you're asked, yes or no, did you read this? And maybe there's a significant number of points at stake. You're like, did I read every single word? Did I retain what I read? Is that what he's asking when he asked if I read this chapter here? Oh, I don't know what to do. And maybe some of you, your consciences aren't that sensitive. You're like, that's ridiculous. You're just black and white, yes or no. Uh, very much in the same way, with God's instructions regarding the ark, it wasn't like there was a, a workaround where you could answer the question differently depending on the sensitivity of your conscience. God says, don't touch this. You touch the ark, you die. what we see here regarding holy things is something that is pretty consistent throughout the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 4, God is actually going to intensify his instructions. He says, even if you look at the holy things, you're going to die. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes to the burning bush and where God's presence resides, what are God's instructions to him before he gets any closer? Take your shoes off. 
you're standing on holy ground. What about when Joshua is confronted by the commander of the Lord's army in the book of Joshua? What are the instructions? Same thing. Take your shoes off. You are standing on holy ground. When Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he thinks he's going to die because he is standing in front of a holy God and it's not until an angel comes and puts a coal on his lips that his guilt is taken away and his sin atoned for. Perhaps the similar example to what happened to Uzzah here is found in Leviticus when the sons of Aaron are instructed, clearly, again, written instructions from God, even the fire that you use has to be consecrated. And they break this instruction. And what happens to those sons of Aaron? They're consumed by fire for breaking something as inconsequential as using a fire that had not already been consecrated. Does God take his holiness seriously? He does. So so let me ask you a series of questions then. Should Uzzah's death really have come as a surprise here? According to God's written instructions, no. How about this? Was God's action of taking Uzzah's life justified? Or was this just some like rash, gotcha? Yeah, it was justified according to written prior instructions. God says, this is what you do. These are the consequences. How about this? Did David have any right to be angry at God? He didn't. We've heard a question like this before. Do you have any right to be angry? Where, Where have we heard that from the Bible? Any ideas? It's in the book of Jonah. Remember Jonah chapter 4? Jonah is furious uh, on two occasions that this plant that he's put so much uh, stock into is withered and dies and he gets angry. And God asks him, do you have any right to be angry? Come on. And Jonah's also upset that uh, God would show forgiveness and mercy to the Ninevites. And again, God asks him, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Is there ever an occasion in which we would be justified in being angry at God? No, because our anger communicates that what? We think we know better. We would have responded differently in the situation. God, what are you doing? We elevate ourselves to the position of God when we get angry at God. And so if you retain any displeasure with God's actions in 2 Samuel here, then you have an insufficient understanding of what actually happened. God's Word is clear and disobedience of his clear instructions have consequences. And I, I don't know that we'll have time to circle back around to this idea, but I, I, to, to apply this to present day, I think perhaps we've become a little too calloused with our disobedience towards the Lord. It's just become something that we do, we sin. Okay, none of us have ever been struck dead in a moment for sinning, and perhaps that has made us become a little too familiar with that concept. And can I just remind you that God's disposition towards sin has not changed? He still takes it very, very, very seriously. And it is an affront to his holiness. It is to make a mockery of what Christ has accomplished for us. So let me just encourage you from this text of Scripture, please take God's command seriously, even today. Yes, the consequences are not going to be as severe, probably, 
God expects obedience to his clear commands. Let's jump back into the story here. We read in verse 11 that this guy, Obed-Edom, has retained possession of the ark for three months. And you can see that last sentence there, that the Lord blesses Obed-Edom and all his household. And word must have spread to David that, hey, you know that guy who has the ark? He's being blessed by the Lord. And David must forget his previous fear of the ark because he's like, we got to get this thing to Jerusalem. If he's blessing Obed-Edom, let's bring it over to Jerusalem, right? Verse Uh, 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And there's kind of a lingering question that remains in our minds. How does David get the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem? Has he learned his lesson? Not three months prior to this, David saw someone die for transporting the ark improperly. Did he learn his lesson? Did he figure out what God had for them? Let's turn it over to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15. It's going to give us a little bit more clarity on how David moved the ark. 1 Chronicles 15. Look at verses 1 and 2. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Okay. David does seem to have learned his lesson, doesn't he? He says, only the Levites, he gets the people right, and he gets the mode of transportation right, may carry the Ark of God. Uh, Jump down to verse 12. We're going to get some further commentary on how David transported it. And this is talking about David. Uh, He says, and he said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the Ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Seems like David really learned his lesson, didn't he? I read one commentator who said, in those three months that passed between uh, the ark staying at Obed-Edom before David brought it all the way to the Jerusalem, David had a long time to read his Bible and study what God's actual instructions were for transporting the ark. Because he says, this is how you do it according to the rule of Moses. He said, this is why God broke out against us the first time. Because we neglected or ignored these instructions, there is a proper way for transporting the ark, and David gets it right this time. I really appreciate how scripture doesn't leave us hanging, and it leaves it to our judgment to, you know, look at us as actions and think, hmm, good or bad, right or wrong. No, scripture is clear. 
you disobeyed God's commands, here's what happens. I really appreciate the continuity of Scripture, even between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles here. And if you could turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we'll kind of finish the story. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark is coming into Jerusalem. We'll read uh, through the end of the chapter here, actually. Verse 12, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her You ever had someone ruin a really good day? That seems to be what has happened here. David is bringing the Ark of God into Jerusalem, finally. The whole city is celebrating. David, it said, is praising the Lord with all of his might, with all of his energy, and he gets home, and he's greeted by his wife, and she's like, wow, you really, you know, embarrassed yourself today. Kind of just sucks the air out of the room, doesn't it? In his own home, his wife berates him. And we're kind of left wondering, like, what in the world is going on here? I think the text says when she looks out of her window and sees him, she, like, despises him in her heart. We can gather a couple of things just uh, as indicators from the text. From her accusations, maybe we can conclude that she was disappointed, maybe embarrassed by his behavior. The commentators have offered here uh, that maybe David was not behaving in a kingly way. You know, if you think of a king as, like, 
well put together, suit and tie, very stoic, very stately. Then David wasn't acting like that, was he? The text says he's jumping around, dancing with all of his might before the Lord, and perhaps what Michael sees is like, that dude's just acting like a common person. Kings should be behaving better than that, right? Certainly. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm inclined to think there's a little bit of a family rivalry at play here. Uh, every time Michael is referred to, she's called the daughter of Saul. I think three times she's called Michael, the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul. And David, in his reply to her, he says, It was the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me prince over Israel. I, I saw another commentator offer something like, um, since Michael observed these proceedings from the window, she wasn't participating in them herself. Maybe she wasn't a God-fearer, and this whole celebration is just strange to her. Right? She's not participating. She doesn't think very highly of God. She sees no need to celebrate this occasion. But I don't think the reason for her contempt for David is critical to understanding this text. I don't even think that this is the most talked about thing from this passage of Scripture. People have other questions regarding 2 Samuel chapter 6, the end of the chapter, other than um, why was Michael upset at David? It's not unusual to hear this story brought up for other reasons. Someone just mentioned it to me a couple of a month or two ago, to be honest, and they weren't mentioning this passage because they wanted advice on how to have a happy home life or a happy marriage. People look at this passage and they want to know what? When do we hear this passage brought up? Any ideas? People want to know, is it okay to dance when you're worshiping God? That's what David was doing. Should we, this Sunday morning, as we're singing our songs in about an hour, get up and start dancing? I mean, David did it. And the second question people want to know is, was David dancing naked before the Lord? The text almost does seem kind of indicate that, to be honest. And so people look at this passage, honestly, they don't really care all that much about David and Michael's interaction. The two large questions are, can we dance? And was David immodestly dressed? So let's just tackle those two questions kind of as they appear in the text. First of all, answering this question, was David worshiping God naked? Well, at a first glance, this seems to be insinuated. Michael accuses David in verse 20. She says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Does kind of seem to indicate that perhaps that's how David was worshiping God. But do the facts of the text support this? Let's jump back to verse 14. Where we read, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. At a minimum, David does have some clothing on, 
We just need to understand what an ephod actually is. I have included a picture of one for you. It was traditionally an article of clothing that priests would wear. And the ephod in this picture is that apron-looking thing. It's yellow and red. You guys all see that? That is an ephod. And so David was certainly, at a minimum, wearing one of those. And we could see how that might be a little immodest if he really is jumping and dancing. And he was just wearing an ephod. Okay. But back to our parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15. You don't have to turn there. I've included the verse. We have further details given about what David was wearing. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. And David wore a linen ephod. So it seems that David isn't just wearing a linen ephod, but what? He's wearing a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites. And so it's incredibly likely that what David is actually wearing is, yes, that yellow apron ephod thing, but also the white robe that is underneath that whole outfit. And perhaps what should be more puzzling to us than asking the question, did David dance naked? We should be asking, why is David from Judah dressing like a Levite? Why is he dressing like a priest right now? That seems to be more puzzling to us. Not this question of uncovering himself that Michael accuses him, but how could someone who just earlier in this chapter got the Levite's position wrong now be dressing like a Levite himself? Interesting question. I think I saw, I'm recalling this just from memory, but people seemed to think that David was a king of priests. I don't know how satisfied I am with that answer. I really didn't study it out that much, to be honest. But I think that the real question we should have when looking at this text is not his outfit, but why this association with the Levites. I, I do want to make the additional point here that worshiping God in a immodest fashion is never something that Scripture would seem to condone. Uh, there are a couple of strange instances, uh, I'll admit, that are a little bit puzzling or outliers to me. But God has... Uh, some pretty clear instructions for the priests. He says, you guys can't even have stairs going up to your altar because we don't want people looking up your robes, so to speak. He, he, he then gives instructions about undergarments for priests to protect that. So to insinuate here that David might be engaged in this very uh, outward expression of immodesty and worshiping God, to me, just does not hold any water. But this is seriously a question I was reading just this week that millions of people are asking. Did David dance naked before the Lord? Well, I think the scriptures have a pretty clear answer. No, he, he was not. He was wearing a linen robe and an ephod. What, what are we to make of Michael's accusations against him then that he uncovered himself as a vulgar fellow? Well, if you keep in mind that perhaps David was obviously not wearing his kingly robes, then maybe the uncovering of himself was just taking off what would have been the defining characteristics of his uh, leadership, these distinguishing uh, robes that only a king would wear, and he's dressed like a common priest. Uh, it, it's, it's speculated that this may have even been just uh, clothing for the common individual. And here's the king, this high, exalted individual who's just like everyone else. W what's he doing here? How about this question? Should we incorporate 
dancing into our worship. Is that the green light for us this morning? To get up and start dancing around as we sing, just because David did it here in 2 Samuel chapter 6? Again, let's just consider some general truths from this passage of Scripture. Both times that dancing is mentioned in this chapter, it is explicitly stated that David's dancing is before the Lord. This is an act of worship. And we can't get around this idea of dancing in the scriptures. You turn to Exodus, you're going to see it. You turn to the Psalms, you're going to see it all over the place. People are dancing before the Lord. But the question remains, what do we do with this? What are we to make of this as Christians in a conservative setting in, you know, 2022? Should we dance before the Lord? Well, can I just draw your attention to the attitude of David's heart in this passage when he is accused of embarrassing himself, of making a fool of himself by his wife David's reply is pretty telling here David says in verse 21, it was before the Lord look at verse 22 I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. David is in essence replying, what you observed today in the celebration was for the Lord. If you think, Michael, that I'm concerned about keeping my image or my reputation intact, that I want people to look at me and go, wow, David is so awesome, then I'm going to do things in acts of worship later that are going to seem more contemptible than that. Michael, I don't care what you think. I, I wasn't doing this for you. I wasn't doing this to protect my image. This is for the Lord. I am performing for an audience of one. I, I thought of a parallel example that might be more likely in our time. So imagine that you are in your car, windows down, singing along to In Christ Alone. And you are so overcome by the lyrics and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. That you are just overcome by emotion, singing out those truths that you have personally experienced in the redemption of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, that you totally forgot your surroundings in the process of singing out at the top of your lungs. You've come to a stop sign and there's a dude on a motorcycle right next to you just looking into your window like, what in the world is going on? Like, here's this crazy person singing along to music, uh, obviously not aware of his surroundings, and you've just been serenading the whole street as everyone's just uh, windows down looking at you like, okay, who's this crazy guy? But the point is, right, that never once did it cross your mind that you were performing for the dude on the bike next to you, that you were trying to impress him. Yeah, you may be a little embarrassed now realizing what your actions how they appeared to other people. But in that moment, you were worshiping whom? God alone. You, you were singing to an audience of one. What was coming out of your mouth was an expression of a change that you have experienced in your heart, and you weren't ashamed by it. And so I think the question is phrased wrongly on the screen, to be honest. 
We should not be asking ourselves after reading 2 Samuel chapter 6, should we incorporate dancing into our worship? We should be asking, have you ever got excited worshiping God? Really? Do you sing from a heart that has been changed, that can't help but sing out these glorious truths of the gospel? Or do you just come Sunday morning, you see the words on the screen, you kind of sing ho-hum along to the verse chorus four times, and then you sit down and listen to a message. Can I encourage you this morning? Do you even sing? Our worship of God should come from a heart that overflows with excitement for who he is and what he has done for us. And yeah, sometimes we might embarrass ourselves a little bit in the case that I just mentioned in our car with the windows down. But we are gathered here to corporately worship this Jesus, this God. There's nothing to be embarrassed about here. Sing out, please. Let, let these truths that are so rich that I hope have impacted you just burst forth from your lips. Make that joyful noise as the scriptures declare. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Second Samuel and uh, letting us be able to answer some of these questions that really have puzzled Christians even today. Um, and we can look at them and we can answer them, but I pray, Lord, that uh, really, when we worship you, it would be out of a heart that loves you, that is moved, stirred, impassioned to worship you alone. Lord, let us just be overcome with even emotion and seeing out the joyous truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it has accomplished for us.